This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweizer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. Seated by my side is always, well, I should say almost always, he was quarantined last week because he was sick, uh, is Eric Eggers, who's a vice president here at GAI and author in his own right. And Eric, we have a great guest today. I'm very excited about this. We're going to be joined by Michelle Tofoya, who's a multiple Emmy award-winning journalist who has covered basically every high-profile sporting event you can think of. And we're going to talk today about the media and how the media is changing. The media has continued to evolve, and I think no one has maybe had a better perspective on it than our guest, Michelle Tafoya, who recently transitioned from sports journalism to now kind of throwing her hat in the ring and engaging in the political process. Uh, You should know, by the way, that Michelle and I basically already kind of have a connection because she's worked with Chris Collinsworth for a long time. And I'm also from Titusville, Florida. So we're basically like, <laughs> we're basically colleagues at this point. <laughs> hey, hey, get what you can. Michelle, uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. I can't wait to tell Chris that you're from Titusville. I'm very <laughs> proud of that. At least someone is. Yeah. Is there anything to be proud of in Titusville? He's got, he saying. actually has his own picture. And I went to Astronaut High School uh, for a year, the same one that he graduated from, his picture, his little thing there. Okay. You know, it's a thing. Good, good. Well, uh, Michelle, uh, thanks for joining us. I mean, you're well known to so many people for your work on Sunday Night Football on uh, NBC, where you work with Chris Collinsworth and Al Michaels. Uh, before that, you worked at ESPN and ABC, where you covered Monday Night Football. Uh, you know, I could go on endlessly about this. Um, you're now based in Minneapolis, and you've got this terrific podcast called Sideline Sanity, which I would encourage everybody to subscribe to. Oh, thanks. We wanted to have you on to talk about the changing role in my mind of journalism. Um, I've noticed it. Have you noticed it, how it's changing? And what are the changes you've seen? And what are some of the worrisome trends that you've noticed in how the media tends to cover stories or not cover stories? You know, this is one I'm torn on. I'm a history buff. I love reading about history. And the more history I read, particularly American history, the more I realize that a lot of um, politics has seeped into the media for a long, long time, that that it, it tainted um, things from long ago, from even before the Constitution was written and in colonial America. And so uh, it, it's, it's always been there. When people realize that a publication can influence so many people, then they think, wow, 
all right, well, let's influence them to our way of thinking. Now, I do think it has been terribly one-sided for a long time. And now you've got other iterations of, of news channels like Fox News and Newsmax and some that are even further to the right, uh, trying to provide a balance. Um, but I think one of the major changes is that while many journalists in the past were strictly journalists who wanted to find truth, who wanted to find objectivity in their coverage. It seems to me today that a lot of journalists want to be, want to insert themselves into the story more. They want to be the story. And there's certainly journalism schools and journalists in general are agenda driven. And there's no doubt about that in my mind. There's, you can't even mask it anymore. And for me, it's really difficult to pick up any publication and, and go, okay, I've got to, decide where is this writer coming from what is their point of view how how do i read this with some skepticism because i have to and i, I don't care where you read you have to approach it with that mind of get out of their echo chamber and try to read this with some objectivity but the, it's it's difficult to pick up anything anymore any publication and think i'm going to get the truth here it's just it's really disappointing We'd love to talk about the role that social media plays in that. And if that's maybe a change over the last five years, Peter and I produced a documentary about social media, Facebook, Twitter, and the way it sort of can silo off uh, perspectives, keep things censored from public discourse. But I think yeah. another impact it has is it's made the reporters, as you noted, maybe instead of somebody that's telling someone else's story, they become the story and they get a lot of adulation and feedback uh, in the echo chamber of social media for having a perspective that's, I think, rewarded by the algorithm, which rewards maybe a more progressive political perspective. Do you do you see that at all? Absolutely. And, or, yeah. Absolutely. And I guess, how do you feel like social media has impacted journalism? Well, you know, a lot of the times people just now want so much to be first, because rather than getting it to a printing press now or, or, or you know, getting a tape to remember that scene in broadcast news where they're running the tape <laughs> through the newsroom and they're trying to get it to air on time. Uh, instead of that, we're, we can immediately post. I can post right now while I'm talking to you guys and know that whatever I'm posting is going to be out there like that. You have a huge social media fund. We'd actually prefer it if you would, Michelle. That'd be great <laughs> for us. <laughs> I will promote the heck out of this. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, though, because I remember when Twitter first came on the scene and, you know, we were encouraged as journalists. I was a Monday night football at the time to, you know, tweet, tweet, tweet. And uh, so it, there was this encouragement to just be first with any anything instead of being right. I, I can say that that was not Monday Night Football's approach, and it certainly wasn't Sunday Night Football's approach. But it was sort of the the ESPN approach was just you know get get the news out there, be first, be first. We always on Monday Night and Sunday Night wanted to be right. I mean, of course you want to be first, you want to break a story, but you want to be right and. I think I, I, I guess I just felt sort of in the minority many times as a reporter who I, I so wanted to get stuff right. I so wanted to be good on my sources and let them know that whatever they told me on background was on background. Whatever they told me was off the record was off the record. That takes years to build that kind of trust. It takes years to cultivate those relationships. I mean, really. And so for me, it was always, before I hit send on anything, I wanted to make sure, damn it, that I was right. But what, what, so what has replaced that now, to be first, opinions, 
you don't have to be right, right? You can tweet out an opinion about something or an observation that is, it doesn't have to have the facts to back it up or doesn't have to have a source to back it up. It's just your observation that gets out there and people just start repeating that stuff. And (laughs) I've seen this up close and personal with my kids. You know, I've got a 17 and a 14 year old and they'll sit there with their device and go, oh, mom, did you hear about da da da? And I'll, I'll start firing back questions to them. And they don't always have good answers. So it really is amazing how much gets out there in front of eyeballs that is headline worthy or clickbait that has no other substance to it. Yeah, it seems to me that there is this pressure uh, that social media has brought to be quick. Um, there's also, um, I think, a generational change that's taking place. I mean, it seems like, look, we can we can accrete this myth, you know, about Walter Conkright and the older generation, you know, being just about the facts. We know that there was political involvement and manipulation, but now it seems so much more out there. I mean, it, it, it seemed like in the case of, you know, the coverage of Donald Trump, whatever one thinks of Donald Trump. The New York Times ran a piece on its front page, not on an opinion page, basically saying after Trump got elected that we are now part of the opposition. In other words, we have a moral duty to oppose this president that transcends journalism. And I'm wondering if you saw something similar in the sports media. You certainly had the Colin Kaepernick story. You had other instances. But the thing that concerns me here is, you know, honestly, if I'm turning on sports news or I'm reading the New York Times, I'm not particularly concerned about the opinion of the reporter. I want to actually hear about the story, both sides of the story. I don't really care what a 26-year-old reporter at one of these locations you know, wants to tell me about what they think is going on. Yeah, there's certainly um, uh, there's certainly a stronger left-leaning opinion in the media everywhere. And certainly that's true in sports. There's no denying it. And so I just, I remember after Trump's election, certainly with the whole Kaepernick thing, and those two things were very tightly uh, related, um, that certain reporters would ask questions. I'd be in press conferences or on phone calls um, with uh, multiple reporters. And the way they'd frame their questions would assume, for instance, that the person that they were talking to, the athlete or whomever they were talking to, agreed with them on stuff. Yeah, like you want to get more involved in in getting out the vote, don't you? Yeah, right. leading questions like that. That to me, and I I remember calling one of my friends on it. I, I called him later and I said, "Dude, do you realize how that sounded? You're better than that, man. You're 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 better than that." And he he sort of uh, you know he copped to it and said, "Yeah, I, I guess I get a little of that. I let it get to me." But that that's that shouldn't be acceptable to you as a professional journalist. That should not. But these leading questions or this assumption, you agree with me, don't you, about you know this and that and the other? And I, I just couldn't stand that. I, I, I really tried to keep out of that kind of fray and just ask really well crafted questions to the extent that I was capable of that. But so I did observe that. Um, I, I did see reporters or columnists siding taking sides on an issue and amplifying some issues and, you know, kind of ignoring others. So there's no question that that happens, but you're right about Cronkite, right? I mean, we all thought that that was just the purity of journalism and all of that, but history shows it's, it's always been there. I think it's just so much more blatantly. So now. Yeah. I'd love to know because you do live in Minnesota 
And so I'm assuming you were in Minnesota and in the Minneapolis area during the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so I would just kind of love to get your perspective as somebody that works in the media and then seeing the impact of the George Floyd summer and how it impacted. I mean, what you just said about getting out the vote, that's a direct result of the, the protests and things that emerged out of the George Floyd thing. And I think it brought about this like merger of sports, culture and politics and it undoubtedly had an impact. I think that was beneficial to Democrat political candidates because you're leveraging the cultural sway in the name of get out the vote. But I think kind of like the Zuckerberg money that went to the elections with with an intended outcome, right? Like they weren't getting involved to get out the vote for Donald Trump. No. So I just so so <laughs> is that something? Was it challenging for you to want to just say hey, I'm reporting on this or like I have an opinion too? And just what was it like? Yeah, to work in sports journalism in 2020, especially as a, as a Minneapolis resident uh, and just seeing the, the impact that had, I think, on a lot of things in a way that I think did impact the, the outcome of an election. The, the first thing I think about when people harken back to 2020 was an evening where we were under curfew and we had neighbors over and we were just sitting in a, a screened in porch area, sort of having some wine and whatever food we could find. We we're just sitting there talking about how weird this was. Desperate that times. We were, <laughs> desperate times. I remember we were eating a bunch of string cheese. I remember that. I, I just, I remember thinking we were all talking, just going, how bizarre is this that we're under curfew, that we're, we can't really go anywhere, you know? So we hung out just our little neighbors together. Um, I also remember very vividly, the CNN reporter saying, and these are mostly peaceful protests with a fire <laughs> raging behind them. <laughs> and I remember a neighbor across the street trying to find resources to take down to one of her friends who was a business uh, owner whose business was on fire. And she was mm. running around saying, anyone have fire extinguishers? And we were all trying to come up with fire extinguishers so she could run down there and help. I, I just remember it being so lopsided that, you know, this is – this is the voice of the the oppressed and 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 what about all these business owners who were just getting hammered i mean and it's really never come back i mean i, I avoid that part of town hmm. which is really sad to me i've been here about 25 years now and it's sad to me to see what i once considered a really safe lovely city just kind of crumble um but yes then all of that <laughs> 2020 was such a bizarre year. And then we, you know, of course, that was a COVID reaction too. And it makes you wonder if we hadn't been on lockdown, would the would the riots and all of that been the same? Do you know what I mean? Right. Would it right. have been as vociferous? Would it have been, been as as much of an out? Now, it's possible it could have. It's possible COVID could have had nothing to do with that. But the forgiveness of that kind of assembly, you know, where the rest of us were being locked down and, and told to wear masks and not go anywhere and, and not go to school – you, you, but you can go riot in the streets. Right. So it, it was, it was clearly there was this double standard of what was acceptable assembly, you know? And so, um, I, it, it trickled into, into sports certainly, but I think for the NFL season under that COVID, um, bubble, it was just, so, everything was so different that year that, I think once we got to the football season and we were hoping COVID would be over by then and it wasn't, it was more about those restrictions and not how we could, we didn't have the same access to players and coaches and teams that we always had. We had to do all our meetings like you, like we are right now on Skype. We couldn't go sit in. And if we wanted to go to practice, we had to present a negative COVID test and all we were testing three times a week and all this stuff. So it became much more about COVID by that point 
by by the time the, the whole sports thing started. However, I will say that you know the Black Lives Matter protests and all of those things were very much part of the picture. You had end zones with things like stop hate and and that kind of thing painted in them, and so it was just this amazing coalescence of of social issues bubbled yeah. up at one time while you're wearing a mask. So it's just, it was, <laughs> it was, it was, it's a blur and, but I do know it wasn't pleasant and it was certainly wasn't as much fun. It was definitely a perfect storm in 2020 and Minneapolis is, uh, was a great city. Uh, I haven't been there since 2020, but I've heard how much it's changed. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, Michelle, kind of looking at, the problem that we've identified with the changing media landscape. What is the solution? Is the solution what we're seeing now, this growth in new uh, media platforms? I mean, you've got your podcast, Sideline Sanity. You've got other podcasts. You've got alternative news outlets. Is that a good thing in your mind? Is that so more confusion or is that a healthy thing to see this this growth in media outlets and various opinions? Um, you know, it, it seems to me like I read the New York Times for 25 years every day and I finally in 2020, 2021 just canceled it Yeah, because it was no longer sort of the I always knew it was liberal, but it's, it was no longer the defining sort of news authority. Um, we don't have that anymore. and I don't think we're ever going to have that anymore. That's probably a good thing, right? I guess so, because you don't want one resource to be the dominant, you know, hub of news. Because again, they they know that, and they go, "Look at us. We're getting all the readers. We're getting all the eyeballs. So we can influence this thing any way we want." I do think that growth of Substack is really interesting. And I, when I was in business school after after college, I went to business school, and I remember this notion of you would have all these players come into an industry. At like a Substack or podcast. And then there would eventually be this shakeout and the successful ones would survive. Now, what's going to define success here? I love Substack. I love getting a variety of opinions. And I've always said more speech, not less. Um, and so I think to find these viewpoints, I think still, however, you know, one of, one of my favorites is the free press, the Barry Weiss site. Yeah. Um, I do think she does a tremendous job at representing a lot of different opinions, a lot of different people's voices. Uh, so that is one that I really appreciate. I think that they make an effort to do that more than, more than most. Um, I do, you know, I do tend to trust the wall street journal, uh, but again, I gravitate toward their editorial page because it kind of echoes the way that I feel about things. That's the danger. We find ourselves in these little echo chambers and we forget, or we ignore the fact that there are these opposing, you know, massive opposing viewpoints outside of that. So um, it's, and I think that's why we get so surprised with these elections sometimes is because <laughs> we've been reading our own stuff and believing it. And so, you know, supportive of it. And then, the, but there's this other, there's this other bubble and we just don't realize how big it is. So I do think more voices are better. I do think all these outlets are better. And I do think there will be a shakeout and that the the strong will survive. But I certainly hope that, I, I, I don't know, I, I am, the toothpaste is so far out of the tube as far as this opinion journalism. I don't know how we're ever going to get it back. I, I don't know that real journalists, 
exist anymore. Uh, um, very few of them do. Present company excluded, of course. <laughs> well, I'd love to know how your opinion of media has changed, or maybe that's, what's one thing that surprised you or one thing that's made you change your mind as you've transitioned from somebody that has been an active and working journalist to now somebody that's more in the, the political realm. You left NBC and you joined as a consultant for a Republican candidate for governor in Minnesota. So now it's kind of you're having to work with the media or try to do things to get it covered. And I just wonder like what that experience has been like for you and how that shaped your take on the media. Uh, I don't know if it shaped my take on the media. Although my, my take on the media tends to continuously go down in a downward <laughs> slope, my opinion. I, I, I see more and more stuff all the time where I just shake my head. I really do. And, um, I, I could come up with a, with a myriad of examples, but I, I'm not going to do that. What I will say is being part of a political process that you mentioned, Kendall Qualls was a candidate running for governor who I thought was, a, obviously I thought was very promising. Otherwise I wouldn't have gotten involved. What happened at that Republican convention, they have a nominating convention here in Minnesota was disgusting to me. It, mm -hmm. I, I like, honestly, it was such an eye opener of how grotesque this process can be to can, nominate someone. Can you elaborate? Because I would imagine most of our listeners or viewers probably are unfamiliar with what all happened and what's entailed in that process. Yeah. So we we had, I think, started with five or seven candidates that went to this nominating con con convention. And then they, they the, the delegates vote, not, not the general, this is not a primary, these are delegates, right? So they're very, very into this, which makes them already not representative of, of the mainstream. So they are very, very into this party and this party platform and who's going to represent it. So you go through the vote, one drops out, you go through the vote, the next two drop out and those delegates move on to other people. Well, Kendall, my, my candidate moved into the lead and the person who was just behind him went to his office and said, make me your Lieutenant governor and I'll give you all my delegates. That's, that's the deal. Right. And Kendall said, I'd never made such a deal and I'm not going to make that kind of a deal. I haven't decided on my Lieutenant governor. This candidate then went out on stage and said, well, I've just been lied to by Kendall Qualls and, mm. and spewed this. So just told this whole spun this tale that was completely fabricated and untrue. And so he said, so I'd like all my delegates to vote for the other guy. Mm. So, mm. so this is how it happened. And mm. we ended up with a, with a candidate who was less than ideal and uh, Kendall's still very active out there, and he's involved in a lot of really great uh, causes here in Minnesota. But to see that happen, it was so sleazy and slimy and dishonest that I honestly, I felt, you know, that that idea of I got to go take a shower? I felt that grimy afterwards, and I, it was incredibly disappointing, and I've quite frankly lost faith in politics in general. Yeah. Well, uh, for good reason. And a lot of people have. And, you know, this is something we deal with all the time, uh, Michelle, when we do our researching and report, uh, you know, people see what we expose, they get disheartened and they say, well, I'm just going to get out of the process. And wow. our response to them always is. Don't do that. That's what the corrupt people want you yes. to do because the decent people leave and all you're left is sort of this residual uh, corrupt aspect. But it is very hard when you see it up at front because you want to be involved in the political process. You want to debate ideas because you care about 
ideals and values in people. Yeah. And oftentimes you get uh, in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the muck. Wait, is that why you started the podcast, though? Because you, you left, you were going to kind of be in polit- politics and you wanted to engage, but you were so disillusioned by what happened with uh, your candidate that you're like, I'm out. I'm going to do something else. The podcast started first. I okay. mean, the idea for the podcast started first. I mean, I, I was happy to support Kendall. And if he ran again, I'd support him again. Um, so e- even through all that muck, but I, but I don't, it's hard to see potential for change in some of these systems like that mm. nominating convention. It, it, it ought to go away. There ought to be a primary period, yeah. the end. Yeah. And and what they have all these candidates do when they go into that nominating convention is say, I will honor the result. I will not primary. So even though there is a quote unquote primary later, everyone's already said, I won't be in it. And whoever is the nominee out of this convention will get my support. So it's just, it's, it's so limiting and it's so not really it's not really free. It's it's just you're locked into what these delegates have told you is the right thing. Um, so I, you know, I, I'll t- I'll say this too because I'm feeling this today with with what's gone on in Florida recently is that I think the Republican Party really needs to figure out a different position on abortion. I think they need to message it differently or get the hell out of the way or something. Because as someone put it this morning, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who I was watching the news listening. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Every time a Republican talks about abortion, someone <laughs> leaves the Republican party and joins the Democrat side. Yeah, And it was a, a very good, ex- and I think that's true. Now I, I'm, I happen to be pro-choice to a, to an extent. Yeah. Um, but I, and I'm also tend to report support Republicans, but the messaging on this has been terrible, yeah. and it, it needs to get a, a, a revamp in a big way. Well, and I think it's interesting the way you said it, uh, uh, Michelle, you're pro-choice to a point. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where most Americans are I agree. in the middle. And, and what's interesting is the emphasis, of course, has been on, on some of the Republican bills that you talked about. If you look at the Democrat side of the equation, the Democratic national position is basically abortion up through nine months, which is extremely unpopular. So I agree with you. I think there's a messaging issue. I I think there's going to be a consensus point reached here. But the messaging has been absolutely terrible uh, because the position that the national Democrats have, I think, is is very extreme as well and not particularly popular also. Maybe another example of media bias, right? Because what because those bills on the Democrat side don't get highlighted and publicized to the extent that as you're you're hearing about Republican initiatives in Florida. You're not hearing about the initiatives is to make abortion legal up until nine months. We've even seen some examples like it literally you could have it right up until the point of birth. Yeah, it's it's yeah. brutal. It's I mean, that is extraordinary. And everyone will come at you with. But there's this example of this <laughs> exception. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you know, it's it, it's infinite. They'll come up with these yeah. exceptions to infinity and beyond. And it's it's. Yeah, the messaging has got to change. But I also think, you know, one thing that doomed the Republican candidate for governor here in Minnesota was he had gone on the record saying, I will ban abortion. You can't say that. You're going to scare the hell out of so many people. And even if that's what you'd like to do, 
to go on the record, it just it ruined him. And it's especially in him. especially in a state like Minnesota, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we've had this wonderful conversation with Mattel, uh, Michelle Tafoya. Uh, thank you for joining us, Michelle. She's got an excellent podcast called Sideline Sanity that I've been on. I would encourage everybody uh, to subscribe. It's terrific. She's got a whole wide variety of guests. Um, and we appreciate you joining us. And I hope we can do this again sometime soon. I would love to. I would love to. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Well, we thank you for joining us for another episode of The Drill Down. You can find this podcast, of course, at thedrilldown.com or other fine podcast locations. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. 